<clears throat> Please be seated. <clears throat> Thanks, Brian. It's good to have you back so I didn't have to play a guitar again. <laughs> I think everybody appreciates you. <laughs> Thanks to the musicians, always. Uh, if you have a Bible with you, please open to the book of Ephesians. We'll look at um, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 25 through 5, verse 2. Um, the text is also printed in the bulletin for you. So last week we talked about this passage, um, kind of zoomed in on a particular part of it anyway. We talked about forgiveness, as uh, forgiveness of those who have hurt us or those who might even regularly hurt us in our lives uh, as, uh, as the most difficult, highest, purest form of love, of Christian love, of uh, self-giving. And this week, uh, we're going to talk about the passage again. We're going to begin maybe a more rounded out discussion of what love looks like, uh, and we'll come back at, um, to it again next week, actually. We're just going to talk about some of it again this week. But um, Paul is beginning here in this part of his letter to the Ephesians to uh, reflect on the application of the gospel. He's been talking about the gospel itself, with the reality that God has created in our lives through the work of Christ and through his Holy Spirit who's been given to us, the shape that that has taken because of who he is and what he's done for us. He's talked about the gospel, now he's talking about the effects of the gospel, the application of the gospel to our lives and our relationships. So there's a, a new spiritual reality that we've been introduced into by God's grace, and it has an effect in our lives. It transforms our lives together. So as I mentioned last week, at least briefly, uh, you've got here some echoes of the Ten Commandments, which is why we um, read it as the uh, Old Testament reading. Brian read it. <clears throat> um, and, I, you know, we did a series a couple of years ago on the Ten Commandments that uh, I think a few of you at least have mentioned was helpful. Uh, and just so you know, the, those series are all on the website, and there's, I think, maybe some CDs out on the book table where you can uh, refresh your memory about all the Ten Commandments. We're not going to go through all of them. Uh, That's not what Paul's doing right now. But um, something to remember about the Ten Commandments is that um, they were given to God's people, to Israel, when we read about them in Exodus 20, the first time you read it, and then again in Deuteronomy 5 when they're sort of reiterated. Um, They're given to God's people who have already been saved. Right? They're, they're already rescued by his grace. They're not given as, hey, these are some benchmarks that if you meet these things, if you meet these standards, then I will accept you. You'll be acceptable in my sight and we can have a good time. Um, no, it's that God already, he introduces himself in the Ten Commandments as the one who's already delivered them. He's already rescued them. He's already saved them uh, from Egypt, which is the big Old Testament picture of uh, it kind of foreshadows Christ, the ultimate delivery, the ultimate rescue that we uh, need from, um, uh, because of his grace. So the, the commandments, the law, right, moral imperatives, things like that, things like what we're, what we're seeing in our text this morning are um, given to people who are already basically Christians, right? uh, people who are already in a relationship with God by his mercy through faith. And they're given to show how we should live in community with God and with each other. We have community. We have relationship. This is the way that it plays itself out in our lives. Do this. Don't do that. Right? And uh, it's given for our good. Uh, the, the law is given for our good. These commandments here that Paul's introducing as our, um, 
the way we respond to the gospel or apply the gospel in our, our lives is given for our good individually, but especially corporately. It's actually good for the body. It's good for the corporate group that we are as the church. And the, the commandments that are given are essentially relational. They're interpersonal. They're interactive. They're not abstract virtues or ethics or rules that you can just, um, just as well keep in isolation, never seeing anybody in solitude. God's law can't be kept. The law of love cannot be kept off by yourself in a corner, right? Uh, these, are, these are commandments for how we live together. That's what God is interested in, and that's why Jesus and the New Testament authors sum up the whole law when they do multiple times, they sum it up with love, right? The whole law is summed up with this, this one word, love your neighbor as yourself, right? So, um, J.B. Torrance says, uh, it's a theme we've noticed several times in Ephesians, and I always quote him. Um, he says that God is in the business of creating community. Right? God is in the business of creating community. He's already created the church through the gospel of Jesus Christ, through his life, death, and resurrection. And our response of faith, then, as those who have been introduced into relationship with God by his grace, our response of faith is to imitate him, imitate God, the one who's business it is to build up community, right? To create community. And, and so we're to imitate him and build up our community to love one another in ways that reflect how God has loved us. And that's what we're talking about this morning. So uh, let me pray, and then we'll read the scripture. <clears throat> Father, we need the illumination of your Holy Spirit. We've been given the revelation um, he has worked through the apostles and the prophets to produce what we have on paper in front of us, to give us your very word, the, um, the information, at least, that we need to know about you if we're going to truly know you. And we need to be able to uh, be receptive to that. We, we need to be made receptive to that by you, because there's only resistance by nature in our hearts as people who rebel against you and distrust you and live in suspicion of you. So we pray that you would overcome those obstacles in us, that your spirit would renew our hearts and minds so that we'd be able to receive your word with gladness and be changed by it into the likeness of Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. <clears throat> Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, but give, and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. 
This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So we're talking about love. There's nothing easy about love. There is nothing easy about love. You don't actually just fall into it. No matter how we all describe, you know, how we met that special someone, you don't actually just fall into love, not real love, right? There's nothing easy about love. We use that language, falling into love, when we're talking about romance, when someone actually kind of overwhelms us with, uh, with their attributes or the perceived benefits of being in relationship with this person. Um, we're, we're overwhelmed. We become intoxicated right? uh, with this person and everything good about this person. And uh, that's what we mean when we say we fall into love, but it's not exactly love. It's not exactly love. That's not biblical love, right? We've turned the idea of love on its head when we think of love in those terms. Love is supposed to be gift, given, right? That's, love is synonymous with giving gift, right? Um, it's supposed to be gift given, placing yourself in the service of another, adopting their interests, as your own, inconveniencing yourself to pursue the good of the other. You see how that's kind of unidirectional, right? This way, out, right? Um, love is supposed to be gift-given. Love is, is a one-way flow from the lover of energy and resources and even very self, right? Um, normally, in, in our culture, it's, it's normal for us, but I think just for all of us, even in, in the church, we mean um, by love, gift received, gift enjoyed, right? Um, like, I really love this steak. <laughs> I'm really getting something out of this. This object as I consume it, or this person as I consume. Um, I'm, I'm receiving and I'm enjoying something. And... Um, but, but God's kind of love. And it's the kind of love that comes from God because this is who God actually is. Right? The scriptures say that God is love. God's kind of love is gift given. Not gift received and enjoyed and consumed, but gift given. That's the way that love flows in that direction. And there's nothing easy about that. Nothing easy about that. We ha- I think we had a pretty difficult conversation last time about forgiveness as kind of the pinnacle, as kind of the the ultimate, purest, freest form of that kind of love. And it's very hard for us to see it in its clearest form and, and do that, right? Love is hard. It's, it's all active. It's all effort. It's all expense. It's work. It's sacrifice, right? It's not the kind of thing that self-centered people do very well at all. In fact, um, <clears throat> we just said that we normally redefine the term entirely to communicate the self's reception, the self's enjoyment, rather than the self's giving. That's self-centered people turn love into a thing about me. What do I get out of this? Um, So it's not the kind of thing self-centered people do well to to actually love the way that we're meant to, the way that God loves, because that's who he is, and the way that he tells us about love in the scriptures. We'll We'll even hold true love at bay uh, really love, we'll hold that off while, um, while we're imagining that we are loving because true love, real love, uh, love in action, suffering, sacrificial love in real relationships with real people, that's just too hard. We just don't do it. There's a quote, uh, I think I put it in the beginning of the bullet in the front, front cover. Dostoevsky has, uh, 
uh, book, Brothers Karamazov. Um, one of his characters in there, Elder Zosima, he's this wise fellow who's giving a lot of good instruction. And he says, in this one conversation, he's, uh, he says, it's just the same story as a doctor once told me, observed the elder. And this is what the doctor told him. <clears throat> I love humanity, he said, but I wonder at myself. The more I love humanity in general, the less I love man in particular. In my dreams, he said, I've often come to making enthusiastic schemes for the service of humanity, and perhaps I might actually have faced crucifixion if it had been suddenly necessary, and, and yet I am incapable of living in the same room with anyone for two days together, as I know by experience. As soon as anyone is near me, his personality disturbs my self-complacency and restricts my freedom. In 24 hours, I begin to hate the best of men, one because he's too long over his dinner, another because he has a cold and keeps on blowing his nose. I become hostile to people the moment they come close to me. Love in action is a harsh and dreadful thing compared to love in dreams. Love in action, love in reality, those real relationships with real people, that's a pretty different thing. It's very hard. We can sit and imagine ourselves in our heads loving others, uh, but wait till you get stuck in the same room with them for a couple days. Then you'll know love is hard. Um, here's an easy illustration for us to resonate with. A lot of you travel for work. You're traveling away from your family, and what's the old saying? Distance makes the heart grow fonder. Distance makes the heart grow fonder. Because that's dream love. That's dream love. And real love is what happens when you get home. When you get back home, and when you're around real people with their real needs, and their real demands, and their real messes, and their real warts. Right? That's real love. That's where the real life of the kingdom is. It's not some imaginary, uh, kind of far away, romantic, ideal vision land. That's not the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is in the ordinary, in the everyday, in the tedious, <clears throat> in those uncontrolled places called home and work and school and church. Right? Paul makes a big deal about these kind of ordinary, constant relationships that we are in, that we really are in. And if you're going to be a Christian living for the sake of others, if you're going to do the, the difficult work of truly loving, then you're going to have to do it with the real people that you're stuck with. Right? Um, and those relationships require your attention. You're not permitted to ignore that hard work with the people that you're stuck with, loving them. Uh, loving your family well because, hey, you know what, you can create a better illusion of being a good Christian around people that you only see infrequently. It's really easy to be nice and impress people in those circumstances, right, because you're not living with them. Um, <clears throat> but the church, the church especially, is to be a place where real love materializes as an expression of God's kingdom, as a response to his gospel. The community that God is building in his image as a reflection of his kind of love, 
of his real love, it's a community where true love is the real shape of things, where it's actually experienced and done. Um, When we do it right, in a sense, we'll be building community. Uh, And we're building a a community where it's normal for gifts to be given, for me to sacrifice, for me to serve. When you're doing it right, you're building a community like that. When you're doing it wrong, we're going to be tearing each other down for the sake of self. Um, Those are the contrasts that Paul himself makes several times in this passage right here. He says that the gospel of Jesus Christ makes you new. It changes everything for you. It compels you to live a life of love, to repent of the old ways of selfishness. Therefore, verse 25, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. So what's the deal with falsehood? Why, why do we lie to each other? If you're self-aware or if you're paying attention in social uh, interactions, you realize falsehood, may, maybe not just blatant lying, but falsehood, it's pretty common. It's pretty common practice for all of us. Why do we do that? Very simply, very basically, it's, it's, ever, uh, it's always ever to, um, to protect or promote ourselves. Right? To protect or promote the self. I want you to think well of me. I want you to think that I'm a good, honest person, and sometimes, maybe a bit ironically, I have to be a bit dishonest if you're going to believe that I'm a good, honest person. Right? I need you to, I need a reputation in your sight. I have a sense of that need. I have a deep sense that myself needs a good reputation in your sight. So whether it's built entirely on reality or you plug in, you fill the gaps here and there and you kind of polish it up with a a little bit of unreality, a little bit of illusion, it's always for the sake of protecting or promoting myself in interactions with others. But that tears against the fabric of reality. It tears it apart. It builds an illusion. Life, according to that self-centered self, it just won't work because that's not a shared reality that we're living in. It's a denial of reality. And how can you have real relationship with each other if you're just going around denying reality? And I don't know what world you're living in, and you don't know what world I'm living in. We need to share the reality that we live in. And, uh, And so telling lies, telling lies, whether they're just bold and blatant, or just a little bit misleading here and there, creating an illusion, creating an appearance that's different from the reality, doing that, or alternatively, uh, telling the truth, these things have deep communal effects. They really affect our relationships. Um, Lewis Smedes um, had a book called uh, Mere Morality. He says this, Imagine a society in which no one trusted another to keep a promise in which every leader was expected to lie as a matter of course, in which every teacher was suspected as an academic cheat, and every preacher a moral fraud. No person in such a society could ever confide in a friend or seek help from a counselor. No partner could ever bank on the loyalty of another. No one could make decisions in assurance of having the facts in hand. No one could be certain of his neighbor's next move. 
life would be brutalized. Without trust, we change from a community to a pack, from a society to a gang. When we're not honest with one another or even with ourselves, um, it has communal effects and it, it wrecks the community that, uh, that God is working to build up, right? Uh, we know this, I mean, if, if you're a parent and you've ever been lied to by your kid, that's kind of maybe one of the first things that happens when you uh, come to realize, oh, my kid's a sinner. <laughs> He's not naturally born pure or whatever. Um, one of the first places you realize is where they, they lie to you. Why do they lie to you? It's, it's to protect themselves. They did something wrong. They hit their sister or they stole from the cookie jar or whatever, and they lie to you. Or they're lying to you to get something, right? They're making up a story to get something that they don't have to promote themselves, either to protect or promote. It's very natural for us. And when your kids do that, um, I think our, our, our response to that is pain, right? Our response to that is, oh, man, this kid that I love just lied to me, just created a reality that just dismantled reality right in front of me. I can't trust them, you know? And if you see through their lies, if you know that they hit their sister or they stole it, whatever that was that they did that they're lying about, right? If you see that, what do you have to do? What do you have to do to get them to come back to reality, to come back to truth, to, to honesty? Let's share a life of reality and living it in the world as it really is together. What do you have to do to get them to, to come back? Yell at them and threaten them with a spanking? <laughs> How's that work? Yeah, I mean, we've done it a million times, and it just doesn't really free them up to do it. It makes them the kind of people who, well, I better, I better learn to lie better so I don't get caught next time. So they can't see through it. I've got to create a better illusion. Because reality is a big threat to me. Right. What do you have to do to coax someone into, into reality? To coax someone into letting those barriers down, those relational barriers, to where you can say, I'm going to offer up what's really going on here, and it's going to expose this tender soul, this tender heart, that's just going to get devastated if it's met with... Uh, harsh condemnation. I'm going to go ahead and put that out there and say, this is what's really happening. They have to be assured that they're going to not be met with condemnation. They have to be assured that uh, they're going to be met with grace and acceptance. You have to look at your kid who lied to you, who did something bad, shouldn't have done it, and they lied to you to try to cover it up and realize they're doing it to protect themselves I've got to assure them that, you know what, it's going to be okay when you tell me the truth. You know, things are going to be okay. I still love you. I'm going to forgive you. Right? That's what's necessary for us to tell the truth. Is to be assured that when we step into reality, <laughs> the way things really are, uh, we're not just going to be, we're not going to be faced with destruction and condemnation for it, Right? <clears throat> often uh, telling the truth means that you're going to lose your reputation. Right? People will have a legitimate right to think worse of you. 
you're going to have to give up yourself. You have to give up your self-protection and your self-promotion to step into the light and tell things and stop the falsehoods and speak the truth, each one to his neighbor. But we can do it. We can do it. We can confess even our lies to one another. I've misled you. We can confess our sins. We can apologize. We can ask forgiveness. We can repent. We can really turn away from those things. We can stop lying. We can speak the truth with with each other because we've been brought into a new, wonderful reality. The reality that we're all afraid of stepping into is, is a glorious, wonderful, blessed reality by God's grace in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Um, we are members one of another. <clears throat> That's the reason Paul gives. You should stop lying, start telling the truth, because we're members of one another. Right? We have community. We've been knit together into a spiritual community. We have organic unity. This members, uh, it's the language of a body, right? Body with its members and its limbs and its digits and things, right? that's the language that Paul's using here. We have an organic unity by the Holy Spirit who knits us together that leads to true mutual vulnerability and real intimacy, interdependence, not codependence. Um, Look up the definitions of those words. (laughs) Um, Interdependence, where it's good. I need you, and you need me. And we've got to be dealing with reality and truth, the way things really are, not in denial anymore, for, for that to materialize, for us to be able to love one another. We've got to bank on the fact that we've already been put together and nothing's going to tear that apart. Not, not the truth. Truth's not going to tear us apart. Right? The truth is we're bound together. We are members one of another. We've been brought into a deep, everlasting, abiding community by the grace of God. You don't need to lie to protect yourself. You don't need to create an illusion for me to promote yourself. Jesus has already confessed your sins for you. Whatever is the darkest stuff in your heart that you think you're covering up by creating an illusion that others uh, might be fooled by, there's darker in there, and Jesus already confessed it for you. He already cried out on the cross, why have you forsaken me? Because he became that sin. He became that dark part of you that you're trying to hide from others and from God. He confessed it. He bore your punishment. There's no condemnation awaiting those who are in Christ Jesus by faith. The true word that he has spoken to you, the reality into which you're called to step into the light, the reality, the way things really are between you and God, and, and here in this community, community of God's people by his grace, the true word that's spoken to you is reconciliation, period. Glorious everlasting reconciliation to God and to each other. And that reconciliation, that approval, that acceptance by God, he knows you better than you know yourself, and he says, it's okay, you can tell me the truth. You're not going to be in trouble. Right? That, uh, that kind of approval and acceptance is not dependent on your reputation. Whatever it is you think you've got to hold up as a nice picture for him to see or others to see, or even for yourself, to accept yourself. It's just not necessary. It's not, that's not the way God deals with you based on that reputation. Right? 
the magnificent reputation of Jesus Christ himself. That's how God deals with you. It's yours by faith. You put your trust in Christ. You have a personal relationship with him. His reputation is how God judges you. It's how he sees you. It's why he accepts you. It's why he approves of you. It's through your union with Jesus by his spirit. It's a gift of his grace. It's not based on your reputation. God has freely loved you. He's given himself for you in the person of his son. He's given himself to you in the person of his spirit. And it was not easy. Love is not easy. But gift given. He's done it. And his love defines your ultimate reality. Your reality. Um, You are free to live in reality now. You're free to say, yeah, I'm a messed up sinner, but God loves me. You're free to live in that reality now. And what a blessed reality it is because it's a shared reality. We're free to live in that reality together. We can let our guard down with each other. And it's a corporate reality. We're all living in the same world. It's the same glorious world that's created by the triune God of love and redeemed by the triune God of love. He's fixing it by his grace. So we can actually live in the real world together, not crafting these lame illusions for each other uh, that put distance between us, actually. That's what illusions do. I want you to believe something that's not true. We're not living in the same world anymore. There's distance. Just self-centeredness. It's no way to live. But we don't have to do that anymore. We can, with integrity and honesty, enjoy the real vulnerability and the real intimacy and the real help, right? the real love um, that comes from that. Um, there's a, a proverb <clears throat> that um, it's kind of one of those things you, you hear it and you're like, what? That's crazy. Um, I never read that before, even though I've read Proverbs a million times or whatever. Proverb uh, chapter 26, 18 and 19. Like a madman who throws firebrands, arrows, and death is the man who deceives his neighbor and says, I'm only joking. Think about that. Like a madman who throws firebrands, arrows, and death is the man who deceives his neighbor and says, I'm only joking. Think of the confusion relationally that's caused their deception if you try to pass it off, which, again, is probably another deception, uh, try to pass it off as, it was just a joke, you know. Uh, it's destructive. It tears down the community. But the truth, being in God's reality together, that brings life, right? And it builds community. Uh, on a, in a similar vein, uh, in this passage, you know, we're talking about kind of language stuff uh, today. Paul says in, in verse 29, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, so as is needed, that it may give grace to those who hear. So, corrupting talk, bad, rotten is what what it means, rotten talk. Um, Filthy language, not just swearing, you know, not just... Oh, you used a bad four-letter word. Um, it's worse than that. It's more pervasive than that. Um, things like slander. Say a bad word here and there about this person over here. 
reviling, gossip, um, sarcasm. Usually we just think, hey, it's part of humor, right? And joking around with a good buddy, being sarcastic. Uh, that word means like tearing at the flesh. It's not helpful. It's, it's not edifying, right? Like Paul says, to build one another up, to give grace to those who hear. Um, those things are all things that work against love. They work against trust. They work against community, right? When you're slandering or reviling. or When Jesus was suffering under the weight of the world's sin, my sin and your sin, right? When he was suffering that, unimaginable suffering, when he was being ridiculed and mocked and shamed and reviled, by the people who passed by him or by his tormentors, he didn't utter one corrupt word, not one rotten word, but only words of love and grace. It was said beforehand, Isaiah said it in 53, Isaiah 53, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. That is to say, he didn't, uh, as, well, as, as Peter says, <clears throat> Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. Rather, he uttered words. He wasn't entirely silent. He just refrained from speaking evil. Right? Um, he uttered words that were good for building up, for giving life, for imparting grace to the hearers. Words like, Father, forgive them, so that we can know what the heart of God is like, the gracious, loving, forgiving heart of God. Or when he introduced his disciple to his mother and said, woman, behold your son, behold your mother. Right? Words of reconciliation and relationship and provision and care. Even in the face of the greatest personal trials and sufferings, unimaginable what he's facing as he's saying, woman, behold your son. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing to you, to me, right now. These are the kinds of things that should characterize our language, too. If we're going to be about love and community building, as Peter said, Christ suffered as an example for us, to leave an example for us, so that we would follow in his steps. Right? Um, if we have received the gracious word of God, these things that we're talking about this morning, kind of word, language type stuff, if we received the gracious word of God in Christ, then we must also give grace in our words to each other because that's, that's the connection that the Holy Spirit is making in our hearts. If you've received it, you're going to give it. If you've received it, you're going to give it. That's the dynamic fostered by the Holy Spirit. It says in verse 30, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. The point of this passage, I mean, here's one of these places where you can point 
to and say, look, the Holy Spirit is a person. He can be grieved, right? The third person of the Trinity, fully God, holy God. You're not sub-deity or something. He is God himself, the Holy Spirit. And the point of this verse is to say, basically, if God, the point of this whole passage, if God has so loved you, then you should so love each other. If you've received this kind of love and grace, you should give this kind of love and grace through your language. That dynamic, that dynamic itself, if you've you've received it, you should give it, is a reality. It's an ultimate reality in our relationship with God, in our lives. Uh, It's an ultimate reality because that's exactly who God is. He's the triune God of love, the God whose very being is mutually self-giving lovers in true communion. Right? This is who God is. Three persons. One God. His very being is mutually self-giving, giving and receiving lovers in eternal communion. And this is why it's absolutely true that his love for you must make you to love others because God's love for you means his self-gift. He's giving himself to you. It's the gift of the Holy Spirit himself that is God himself dwelling in you, the love of God himself dwelling in you. And when God gives himself to you, then his love is inside of you and you're shaped by it. His communal love, his mutual self-giving love is in you. And if he's in you, then you will love with his kind of love. If he's loved you, you will love. If he's in you, you will love. Uh, you will speak the truth because of the spirit of truth. You will speak grace because of the spirit of grace. You will imitate God because of the spirit of God in you, because you're a child of God, as Paul says in the passage. As beloved children, you will imitate him. For you to live in any other way in light of his love for you would be to violate, to violate his love who lives in you, to grieve the, the Holy Spirit, to, to violate that relationship. The reality is that we are his temple. We're knit together with him and with each other. We're members one of another. We have a love. We have a community that's given to us by his grace. So let's live like it and let's walk in love. Amen. Now let's pray together. <clears throat> Father, we are... Um, indeed overwhelmed with your love when we consider the extent to which you went in order to give yourself for us and to give yourself to us. And as you have come into this world in the person of your Son, and as you've come into our very lives in the person of your Spirit, bringing all the holy love of God with you, um, we are truly and inevitably, if it's true of us, we are inevitably changed to be like your beloved children, imitating you in self-giving love, in speaking the truth to one another, in living in reality together, and in speaking your grace in order to build one another up in love. We realize that this too little characterizes our interactions with each other, We don't keep in mind the kind of community that we have with one another by your grace. We pray that you would help us. Uh, We pray that you would fix.
fix our eyes on Christ, that you would grant us a constant sense of your presence, your spirit among us, the Holy Spirit of love. We pray that you would, as you have uh, spiritually knit us together, would you um, make it a material, a tangible reality in our lives together as we, um, as we walk together, as we live together, as we stay in, um, in our families and in our uh, workplaces and with our neighbors and in the schools and especially here in the church, that you would make us the kind of people who speak the truth and speak grace to uh, everyone that we meet because the truth and the grace that we've received from you is good and glorious and we want to live in your reality together as a testimony to your kingdom. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.